but he is somebody who has lived what it means to give grace to others, oftentimes painfully. And so uh, I am excited for you to get to know him, and please welcome him as he comes to the stage. All right. Hi. Um, before uh, we begin, once you, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Acts chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. Just raise your hand, and the ushers will come down and, and give you one. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at home, this is your first Bible. Take this one with you. It's our gift to you. We just want you to have it. Um, just you know, raise your tambourine like that, and I'm going to put this over here. Um, I, wait, who doesn't love Mike Erie? Hello. That guy, I, I want to just share a quick little insight that on Mike Erie. I haven't shared this yet, and if you're stalking Mike Erie, this is a good little piece of information, but Mike invited me over to his house for dinner, I don't know, a couple months ago. He's like, I was just in town, he's like, hey, come over for dinner. I'm like, okay, let's go over for dinner. And he gave me his address, and Mike lives on a street called Sparrowhawk. And what's really great about that street that he lives on, and I told Mike this, I said, that totally describes you. <laughs> you are a sparrow, but you're also a hawk. You know, like this guy is full of love and compassion. He's got this humongous heart. But man, if, you, if you're like taking a religious stand or getting prideful or... I mean, that guy's like a hawk, and he's got to swoop down like you're this little field mouse and rip you into shreds. He's the sparrow hawk. I think that should be his new nickname. I, uh, I love Mike. I love Ken. I love the leadership of this church. Uh, kind of a funny fact, I actually used to work at Mariners in a part-time capacity about eight or nine years ago. And uh, I was up to the, I was on their creative team and, and part of the worship planning stuff, and it was really a lot of fun and just enjoyed uh, working with Kyle and, and Stanton, uh, Stan, as, as you guys may know him. And Stan actually took me out to IHOP one, one day, and we sat down, and we were having pancakes, and I'd been there for about a year or so. And he goes, uh, Mike, uh, we're firing you. I'm like, what? So I, I actually got fired from Mariners. And that, that was a fun, fun experience. And I know LV shared his, uh, his testimony last week about how Mariners welcomes broken people. Not only do they welcome broken people, they hire broken people. Well, my testimony this morning is Mariners also fires broken people if you have bad ideas and uh, don't deliver. So, so that's my story. I'm all done. That's my testimony. I really do love this church. It's an honor to be with you guys this morning. I, I like every other 16-year-old girl in America, I have a Twitter and Facebook account. And I asked a question on my account a few months ago, and I asked people, what bothers you? What, what are things that others, whether your friends, maybe your family, maybe strangers, what sort of things do they do that really bugs you? And it was really interesting just to see this, this outpouring of angst and anger and rage in these situations that really bugged people. And all the way from the guy who drives 55 miles per hour in the fast lane, right? That just, that just bugs us. Or the people that 
update their Facebook status during a date. That's just wrong, right? <laughs> people who talk in the movie theater, that's rude. Those people that take a phone call, I mean, hello, step out and do your phone call. Not during uh, Mission Impossible. I mean, this is not the place for that. But the number one thing that came up over and over and over again that really bugged me, this is the number one, the most consistent answer I got from people, is this. The number one thing that bugs us are the people who, when they're at a shopping mall or at the, the grocery store, they park their cars and they take up two parking spaces, right? We hate these people. In fact, I, I brought some photos. Mondo, fire up that PowerPoint. Right? People park like this. This is so wrong. I mean, I just, I just want to ask the question, how would Jesus park? He would not park like this. And then next, how about the people park like this? Come on. Or how about this? This is nuts. We've all experienced people like, I can fit. I know I can fit. No, you can't. Stop it. But I have a solution for all of us. I know this causes a lot of angst, a lot of rage, a lot of anger. I found this website called iparklikeanidiot.com. And for $35, you can buy 100 of these big yellow bumper stickers that look like this. Check these out. And then what you do is when you see these people parking like this, you take, get out your yellow bumper sticker and you stick it on their car. Woo! Problem solved. We showed them. And what's really great is that I brought a big stack of these and I gave them to the Mariners parking lot team and they're out there right now putting this, I'm just kidding, just joking, just joking. But there's a lot of angst and a lot of anger and a lot of frustration in our relationships and the people that we come in contact and whether it's in our marriages or at our workplaces or with our kids, in our dating relationships, whatever it might be. There, there seems to be a scarcity of grace, a scarcity of understanding, a scarcity of being able to see other people's perspective, a lack of second chance living. I lead an organization called People of the Second Chance. I founded it a couple years ago with a buddy of mine, and our mission is very simple. It's to unleash and advocate for radical grace every day, in every moment, for everyone. We, we want to remind people that just because they fail doesn't mean that they're a failure, and just because they made a mistake doesn't mean they are a mistake. We, we tell people that you matter no matter what. We want to be people that are fast to forgive, and, and we, want to, we want to love our enemies. Why? Because it confuses them. I mean, this is what we are about but unleashing radical grace, unleashing second chance living in our lives, truly living as people of the second chance. My story and my message is, is about grace. And this isn't just sort of a, a message I give or an organization that I lead. It, grace is very personal to me. Because as I look at my own life or the past 40 years of living, I know every single decade of my life, there has been a major crisis, a major moment where I've hit rock bottom, a major failure, where I've been knocked out. I think about it in my early 20s, when I was involved in a, a very serious boating accident, where I was the driver, and I hit another skier. 
And my actions permanently disfigured and disabled this person for the rest of their life. I remember because of that, that accident, standing in front of a judge and looking at six months of prison time. Grace is personal for me. Second chances mean something in my life because I've experienced them over and over again. I think about the time uh, in this decade of my life where I I invested in a business. We had this small business, and I I put thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into this business to try to make it work and went through all of our savings, leveraged everything, and the business went bankrupt in less than a year. We lost it all. I was humiliated by that. I was just, you know, the, the the, the financial toll of that. In some ways, we're still dealing with that now. My life is grace. This is a personal mission I'm on. To to have us all experience this in a profound and powerful way. And yet so often I find myself, even as someone who has received a second chance, who has received incredible grace, as I lead this charge for people of the second chance, I find my my heart so, so rarely represents a grace story. My wife had come home one morning from dropping the kids off at school, and we live in this condo community, and we have this alleyway that, that the two buildings share that feed into the different garages. And she came upstairs, and she told me that as she was pulling into our garage, she hit my little girl's bike and smashed her helmet. And she said the reason why that happened was because my neighbor... Uh, had parked her Range Rover right in the alleyway, right in front of our garage. And so my wife came in kind of kittywampus and had to kind of maneuver around the, the Range Rover. And when she came to our garage, smash, boom, pop. And so I'm like, that lady knows she should not be parking there. It is a very narrow alleyway. It is a fire lane. It is illegal. Can't she see the signs? And so I did what any man would do. I set out to fix the problem. And so I got out a piece of paper, a white piece of paper, and a big black Sharpie marker, and I began to write a note. And I said, dear Range Rover lady, (laughs) never, ever park here again. You caused my wife to hit my little girl's bike and to smash her helmet. Do not ever, and I underlined it like five times, park here again. Love, Mike. And I took... I took this letter, and I took my little girl's smashed-up helmet, and I brought it down there uh, to the alleyway, and I put it on the windshield of the Range Rover. I said, problem solved. Showed her. She's going to feel horrible about this. She's going to feel so much guilt. She's going to probably pay us for the the damages done. Well, about an hour later, my wife calls me. I go into work, and my wife calls me. She said, you're not going to believe this. I'm like, what? So you know that letter that you wrote to the Range Rover lady? Like, yeah, I know the, the letter. So, well, that letter is ripped up into a million little pieces and is now in the helmet and sitting next to our garage. <laughs> and I paused for a moment. And I'm just thinking, oh, no, she didn't. <laughs> no way. She, is, she was the one in the wrong, and now she's disrespecting me like this. I was so angry. I was just, like, raging. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Get back at her. And God's honest truth. The first thing that goes through my mind, like, this, this, is, this is what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to get her back. See, we have this dog poop problem in our neighborhood <laughs> where, you know, everybody's got dogs, but no one picks up the dog poop. So I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. See, again, using my creative skills and talents, this is why Mariners fired me. I, I said, I am going to pick up the dog poop from all around the neighborhood, and I am going to put it on the hood of a Range Rover. <laughs> problem solved. Yeah. Even when we, we claim to be followers of Christ, and we claim to be people of the second chance where we want to have grace invade our hearts, we're hardly living that story, are we? We fall so short. And yet Jesus says, you know what? Your story is a story of grace. You're, the, the way that we reinvent the world that we live in is by reinventing how we live. And we need to live by embracing radical, scandalous grace. Even in those moments when people hurt us. Even in those moments when people park their cars funny in the parking lot. Even in those moments when we have deep wounds from relationships. We seek out and discover radical grace. But it's scarce. It's so scarce in our world. Scarce in our relationships. There's this beautiful story that I had heard from Madrid, Spain about a boy named Paco who, who gets in this disagreement with his father and he runs away and the father searches out and searches the neighborhoods looking for Paco, just wanting him to come home. And he, he could not find his son. And so out of utter desperation, he puts a small ad in the Madrid newspaper. And he just said, Dear Paco, meet me tomorrow at the newspaper's office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. And his amazement, the father's amazement, as he showed up the next day, there was literally hundreds of young men named Paco who showed up at the newspaper office. You see, we're all needing forgiveness. We're all needing second chances. We all want to come home. Jesus wants us to come home. Jesus wants us to know that we are deeply loved. That his grace is real. is isn't just something that we talk about, study, preach about. It's real. As you look at the story of the church, I think in so many ways, as our community and the outside world looks at us, they don't see a story of grace and redemption and compassion and acceptance. They see a place of judgment. And I want to change that. I want to write a new story for the church. I want want us to be people where where we just welcome in the broken. And yet so often, our churches around America and the world say, come just as you are, as long as you're just like me. Or come just as you are, as soon as you get that crap cleaned up in your life, then come on in. We'll welcome you. Or come just as you are, but for heaven's sakes, can you, can you take a shower or clean up a little bit? And that is so anti-Jesus. That is so anti-the gospel. And this is what I love about Mission Viejo. This is what I love about this church, is that this is a place where it's okay to not be okay. Where we do welcome the broken. So that, that's who we are. 
There's nothing good about us. The only thing that's good about us is Jesus. We need him. We love him. Come on in. And let me tell you, this community, if if this community found out about the radical acceptance and the radical grace that's happening in this building, you guys would be doing 20 services, packed out. You'd be be all over the stage because that is what people want. They want acceptance. They want to be able to belong no matter what. Let's offer that to them. That's what a second chance is all about. I don't know if you know this or not, but I was reading this article about the Super Bowl. And last year's Super Bowl, uh, you know, it, it's, it's one of the biggest events in the world. 120 million people watched. Tens of millions of dollars are spent on this one event. It, it, you know, there, there's, there's reporters and, and analysts and, and the teams are strategizing and, and huddling up and and coaching, all this activity happens around the Super Bowl. But do you know how long, how, how much time is actually spent playing football in last year's Super Bowl? 11 minutes. 11 minutes, that's it. Like 11 minutes of actually taking the ball and running it down the field. And I think the church is sometimes like this. We sing about grace. We preach about grace. We do quiet times on grace. We talk about compassion and love and acceptance. And we huddle up. But are we doing grace? Are we doing second chance living? That's the key. Man, if we could be more than 11 minutes, it would change the world. But here's the problem as I see it and, and kind of experience in my conversations with people. The problem is when I, when I challenge us and, and when we're, we're asked to give grace to people, the problem is, is that you cannot give what you haven't received. You cannot give what you haven't received. I'd love to give you $1,000 right now out of my wallet, but I don't have $1,000 in my wallet. You see, the reason why we have such a struggle giving grace to people is because we're so deficient in our own lives, in our own hearts, even as followers of Christ. See, I think many of us have experienced the saving grace of Jesus. But we've never allowed the truth of that radical, scandalous, wild grace that Jesus is talking about invade the deepest parts of our soul and the deepest parts of our story. I love what Brennan Manning says. He says, when, when we die and when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to ask us one question. He's going to ask us this. Did you believe that I desired you? That is a profound question. Do you believe that that Jesus just could not wait for you to get up there? That he was passionately in love with you? Did you believe that? And Brennan goes on to say, the true Christians will say, yes, yes, Lord, I believe that. I believe you desired me. But it's the marginal Christians, the nominal Christians, he says, that will answer that question and say, you know, Lord, I heard about that kind of grace. 
I sung about that time of grace. I, I, I read it in the Bible about that kind of grace, but I just could not believe that it was true for me. So you cannot give what you haven't received. This morning, maybe some of us need to surrender parts of our story, parts of our life, parts of our history, our checkered past. Allow grace to flow. Allow grace to cover. And that's how we start becoming more compassionate and loving to others when we are feeling it and experiencing it in our own lives. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at three stories. So I believe you spell grace, S-T-O-R-Y. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of the cross, but it's also our story being lived out in the world. In Acts chapter 15, we're going to look at three different stories. story of Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, and a situation that occurred with all three of them. And so let me give you a little background on what's going on here. Uh, Barnabas and Paul have been commissioned to go out and to, to preach the gospel. They're, they're, they've been set apart by the church to go seek and save the lost. And so they, they did this big, long missionary tour. First they sailed like 60 miles to Cyprus, and then they, they headed up to the island of Paphos, and then they, they went over to the northwest region of Pamphylia, and so they're traveling all around, and then they come back, Paul and Barnabas and the team come back to Antioch. And we pick up in verse 35. It says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So he's saying, let's, let's go back in all those places that we visited before. Let's go back and just kind of do a little checkup. Let's see how they're doing. Let's go encourage the believers again. And, 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 you know, our time here in Antioch's may be done. There's a lot of other preachers, a lot of other people. Good things happen here. So let's, let's go back out. Verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. So here, here's the deal. Barnabas says, hey, before we go back out on this tour again, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul's having none of it. He's like, we are not taking John Mark because John Mark bailed on us the last time. So we're not going to give him a second chance. And I, I love this, this passage here. Like, this verse 38 doesn't quite, in my mind, summarize the intensity of what's happening here. This is sort of church language or politically correct speak as far as I'm concerned. You know, when, verse 38, but Paul did not think it wise to take him. Right? No, no. Let me give you the message version of this verse because I think this is a lot more accurate. And I'll just kind of my inflection, my tone, I'll try to, try to sell this more. But Paul wouldn't have him. He wasn't about to take along a quitter who, as soon as the going got tough, had jumped ship on them in Pamphylia. That's the truth. That is the seriousness of the tone. This is not just like, hey, it's not wise to take John Mark. No, there was a sharp disagreement about this issue. Do we give John Mark a second chance? Barnabas says yes. Paul says no. And there's lots of reasons, lots of theories that biblical scholars have of why John Mark may have left on that first missionary journey. Some thought, well, maybe he left because they were going into the Taurus Mountains, which was a notorious area for, for bandits and thieves and criminals, and he was just scared. 
So he bailed, like, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm a wuss. I'm going back to Jerusalem. So, some people think that maybe it's possible that, that uh, John Mark had a problem with Paul's leadership. That, that when they were initially commissioned, Paul and Barnabas were sort of at the same level, sort of these co-partners. But in the midst of the missionary work, Paul kind of took a, a leadership role, and, and uh, Barnabas took a secondary role. And so maybe that he was upset by that, and John Mark says, I, you know, forget this, I'm out of here. But let's, most scholars believe that the reason why John Mark left was because he had a disagreement about the actual work that they were doing. And that, that Paul and the missionary work that they were involved in was all about reaching out to the Gentiles, to the lost, the non-Jewish people. And, and scholars believe that John Mark had a problem with this. It's like, I don't want to be reaching out to these Gentiles. I want to be reaching out to the Jewish people. And so he left. There's a philosophical difference. In many ways, John Mark is a New Testament Jonah. He bailed. He left the mission, the work of God. Verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted. So they, being Barnabas and Paul, two great friends, two great leaders, two great men of God, had such a sharp disagreement on this one issue, whether to take John Mark back out on the mission field, they separated. They went their their separate ways. Um, uh, Barnabas, reading on verse 39, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. See, this division was so intense, they could not agree. The lines were drawn, and they went their separate ways, all over the fact of giving John Mark a second chance. So how do we live a story of grace? I'm going to give you three quick, quick uh, points. First off, never forget your own story. See, the problem as I see it in this passage of Scripture, what's going on here is that Paul has forgotten that he used to be Saul. Right? He forgot, Paul forgot that uh, in his own life he got a powerful second chance. He had a powerful radical grace moment in his life. See, Paul was part of the Sanhedrin, this radical sect that threw Christians in jail that killed Christians. In fact, the Bible says that that Paul held the robes of the men that stoned Jesus joyfully, gladly. Let me help you out in killing these Christians. You see, Paul forgot his own story. He forgot where he came from. You know, whenever I get sort of prideful or I start sort of drawing these lines of who can be involved and who can't be involved, who gets grace, who doesn't get grace, who do I forgive, who do I not forgive, as soon as I get in that place, you know, am I going to judge those mothers from toddlers and tiaras? You know, once, I'm, once I'm there, I have disconnected from my own radical grace story. I have forgotten how Jesus has saved a wretch like me. Right? So in order for us to to live a story of grace, we cannot forget our own story. I love what Warren Buffett says. He says that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. That's the story. And then this truth. Let's never forget this. There is never a moment in your relationship with God when the love you're getting is the love that you deserve. 
See, Paul had forgotten his own story. That's why he was unwilling to give John Mark a second chance. And listen, Paul was an amazing biblical uh, hero. But I believe he's wrong here. Jesus perfect, Paul not perfect. It's good. It's good. Never forget your own story. Number two, how do we live a story of grace? Never back down. I love Barnabas. To me, he's the hero of this story, the hero of this passage. Uh, He stood up for John Mark. He believed and lived out and championed second chances in grace. You know, Barnabas' nickname was Son of Encouragement. That's what all the people called him. And within the word encouragement, I see the word courage. I got to tell you, I think we need more courage in the church. I think we need more courage in our hearts when it comes to giving acts of grace. You may have heard this before, but I believe it's so true that the most dangerous place for a Christian to be is in our comfort zone. It's time to take a risk. Risk your reputation. All progress has been birthed by taking an unpopular position. Why don't we be people who touch the untouchable, who accept the unacceptable, to line ourselves with the scandalous people in our community? When we see somebody being torn apart in the media, why don't we stand up and raise our voice for grace? Never, ever back down. Let's be more like Barnabas. I get people asking me this question all the time. Well, Mike, that sounds really nice, and standing up for grace, and, and you know, chasing the prodigal, and that's really important. I think that's a great idea. But Mike, how far is too far? You know, when does it get to be like stupid grace? You know, like how far do we really have to go with this? Is there a limit? And I think there's, those are important questions and important conversations, uh, in, important discussions that we need to have. But I always just sort of default to this overall theme. When people ask me how far is too far when it comes to grace, I, I just simply say this, you know, I don't know, but I, I do know this. I'm really glad that Jesus never asked how far is too far about us and about me and my life. Over and over and over again, Jesus forgives. That's what I want us to be. That's how I want us to live. That's what I want our story to be. Um, Many of you know the story of Michael Vick. Michael Vick was an NFL football player who several years ago was caught operating a dog fighting ring. He he was involved in some horrendous stuff. These poor animals were, were, I mean, he was responsible for the death and the mauling of these innocent creatures. He he became one of the most hated men in America. He's like, Michael, how could you do that? He he was was playing for the Atlanta Falcons. He had a multi-million dollar contract with them. He, He cashed it all in. I mean, he just lost it all because of this incident. He was sentenced to 18 months in Leavenworth Prison, federal prison. Where he served, and, and man, he was, he was toxic. He was radioactive. Nobody wanted anything to do with Michael Vick, except for one guy. There's one guy who stood by Michael Vick, who believed in Michael Vick, 
who stuck his neck out for Michael Vick, who risked his personal reputation for Michael Vick. And that man was Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy was a coach, a Super Bowl-winning coach for the Colts, a Christian. And he would visit Michael in the prison. He, he helped Michael kind of get context for his life and start building his second chance and his comeback. He believed in him. He stood by him. With all the, with all the critics, all the, the naysayers looking on, Tony Dungy stuck his neck out for a dog killer. Reporters asked Tony Dungy, Tony, of all the people, all the football players that you could invest in, of all the things that you could be doing with your time, Tony, why in the world are you spending it on Michael Vick? And I love Tony's answer. It's so simple and so profound. He simply said, I'm investing in Michael Vick. I believe in Michael Vick because that's what I do. That's what I do. As followers of Christ, as Christians, as people of the second chance, that's what we do. Finally, how do we live a story of grace? We understand that we are never, ever disqualified. See, John Mark could have said, you know what, I really screwed that up, that first missionary journey. I don't, I don't deserve to go back on a second one. I'm not even going to ask. I'm not going to sign up for that. I blew it. I, I made some mistakes there, made some incorrect choices. I wussed out. I'm just going to stand over here on the sidelines and just live out a very simple story. God clearly can't use me anymore. I want you to know this morning You are never, ever disqualified. Your story with Jesus never ends in the valley. It never ends on the sidelines. Jesus wants to use each and every one of us to usher in his kingdom. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've been involved in, no matter our mistakes, you're never disqualified for the kingdom. Jesus says you are worthy now, not if, not not when, right this moment. Many of us have a hard time even accepting that. I say those words to you, but you may not believe that. I meet so many people in in, in our ministry and our work that, that deal with deep levels of shame. Where they believe that they're flawed and unworthy of love. That they're unworthy to experience good, goodness in their life, to be used by God. Shame undermines the, and corrodes our, our sense and, and belief that we can be better. Shame needs silence and secrecy and judgment to thrive. It breaks my heart because I know that many of you in this room, and even myself at seasons of my life, have allowed shame to dictate my grace story. You know what the Greek word for shame is? It means to disfigure. Anytime we let that rule our souls and our lives and our thinking and our emotions and our thoughts about 
who we are. It disfigures the grace story that Jesus is trying to tell through you. It disfigures the plan that he has for you. It's a beautiful story about a guy named Monty Roberts, and I'll close with this. Monty was a... uh, in high school, and he and his family were incredibly poor. So poor, in fact, that they lived in a camper shell that was attached to the back of a truck. The whole family lived there. He lived with his mom and dad. Poverty was just a a major theme in their life. They had nothing. And when Monty was in high school, his, his teacher asked him and asked the class to write a report, an essay, about what do you want to do when you grow up? What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? And and, and Monty was really excited about this project. And and he he had been thinking about this for some time. And and he had a dream. And so in his essay, he began to write about how one day he hoped to own a 100-acre ranch where he could raise thoroughbred horses. He could have ranch hands working with the horses. And this was his dream. He wrote this wonderful essay and this wonderful paper, and he turned it into his teacher. And a couple days later, he got the paper back from the teacher. And on his paper was a big, fat, red letter F. Failed. Mike didn't know what was going on here. So he goes and he talks to his teacher. He's like, Why'd you, why'd you give me an F? She's not kept my paper. And the teacher looked at him in all of her arrogance and pride. Said, Monty, I mean, your paper was, was great, but, it, but this is never going to happen. You're poor. How are you ever going to afford 100 acres? How are you ever going to afford to buy these thoroughbred horses? How are you going to pay those ranch hands? I mean, it's so unrealistic, Monty. You live in the back of a truck. Let me tell you what I'll do, Monty. If you want, if you want to raise your grade, I'll allow you to rewrite your essay as something a little more believable, something a little more reasonable, something that is a little bit more possible, and I'll raise your grade. I love Monty's response. I took the paper, his essay, and he hands it back to her. He says, you keep the F, I'll keep my dream." You keep the F, I'll keep my dream. You see, every one of us are going to come across dream killers in our lives. Every one of us meet people who want to diminish our story. We we come across people all the time who want to disqualify us for God's kingdom. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. By the way, the, the ending of that story, and this is the best part, This is really the best part. Imani grew up, and today he owns 110 acres of land in Solvang, California, where he raises thoroughbred horses. His story didn't end in the valley. His story didn't end that day when the teacher said, Imani, that's impossible. You're disqualified for that. Our stories are very important. When you came in, you got a piece of paper and a pencil. We're going to spend a few moments, and we're going to write 
our very first line of our grace story. So get that out, the pencil and the paper. I don't know what the first line of your grace story is, but, but here's the deal. We need to be brave with our stories so others can be brave with theirs. We need to start telling our stories. So why we set up the, uh, the website, an email address, where you can actually share what God is doing in your life. Some of you, your story may begin very simply, Jesus, I need to make you personal Lord and Savior of my life. Some of you may have the first sentence of your story is, thank you, Jesus, for rescuing me from my addiction. Some of your stories, honestly, are, may, may start out, God, I am so angry with you right now. Last service, I, I did mine. This is the first sentence of my, my grace story. And I just wrote, I was a lost boy. Who fell? I felt forever on the outside. And you loved me anyways. Sorry, I didn't know that was going to happen. That's our stories. And you have a story to share. I have a story to share. And I'm never disqualified. I'm never going to back down from the message of grace. And I'm never going to forget what Jesus has done for me. That's how we live out radical grace. That's how we be people of a second chance. Write the first sentence of your story. a few moments. Let Jesus speak. He loves you. I love you. I believe in you. He believes in you. This church believes in you. Let's begin to experience this deep radical grace that he has for us.